Thank you. After that introduction, I'm really looking forward to hearing myself speak. Um, Yeah, that's a test beyond me. <laughs> yeah, night, nightmarishly, we did a team building exercise, which I did not choose the other day as a staff team, which involved being locked in a room. You would pretend you were bank robbers, and you had to sort of do all these kind of mind exercises to get various sets of keys to break into various vaults. It was a nightmare. I was completely neutralized for an hour, while much cleverer people did things like this. Um, anyway, let's, let's, it's all over now, I've forgotten about that. Hello, my name is John, as Rich said, thank you for your kind introduction. Um, so, um, the English. It's got to be the vast majority of us write the English. And we have passed on some very important things to the world. And uh, amongst them would be the knowledge that we have that you really don't talk to strangers. Definitely not in a lift and not on a bus. There's a reason why buses have many, many seats. And that is so that we can all find our own space in a bus without having to talk to a stranger. And uh, so I'd like to suggest that God blatantly disregards English sensitivities. I don't know why he chooses to be so different from the way we think he ought to be, but he is a complete disregarder of that fundamental English principle. It is actually okay for us to talk about queuing and rain, preferably in the same conversation with strangers, but other than that, it is not right. God, however, is this kind of person. You know when you're in a lift and you have to go up a few floors, somebody else gets in the lift, but it's okay, you sort of might nod at them, but you know, look in a different direction. God literally comes up to you and just stares at you. That's what God is like. He's a space invader. Or imagine that you, after a very, very busy time of shopping, um, have found your way to the sanctuary of the upper deck of the bus, and there is literally nobody else there. So there's an internal sigh of relief. There is no chance of me having to interact with another human being. I'm sitting down, I'm knackered, I've done my shopping, I'm sitting down, I'm relaxing now. Thank the Lord. Nobody else is around. Suddenly, you hear what can only be described as a big person with lots of shopping coming up the stairs. Boom, 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 rustle. I mean, it's terrifying, but it doesn't matter because there's many, many, many seats on the top deck. There is no chance of this person coming anywhere near you. They get to the top of the stairs and they turn your way. doesn't matter. Still many, many chairs. You're sitting right at the front to eliminate the possibility of people sitting ahead of you. However, this person is getting nearer and nearer and nearer until they go, boom, sit down right next to you. They spill their bags all over you. God is like that. God is a space invader. He takes up more of his fair share of personal space. At least that is what he wants to do. He's also, I, you know, people will say things like, you know, God, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. You know, he'll never, that's really not true. But basically, he, he does, however, respect our limitations. And he, he wants cooperation with us. And he rarely compels but if he could, he'd be wanting to fill us as much as conceivably possible. He'd be wanting to astonish us with the nearness of his presence. 
He wants to come as near as breathing, as close as hands and feet. So rather unusually, my church managed to coincide with the church calendar last week, and we spoke about Pentecost at the same time as the rest of the church, I know. Anyway, so I thought I'd just read to you from this very familiar passage and ask the question, what on earth is going on here? But I do feel it's about God being the space invader. So this is from Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be um, tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his or her own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these speaking Galileans? Then how is it each of us hears them in our own language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, etc., 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 Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, saying, oh, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, addressed the crowd, and said, fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. So what are we supposed to make of this? In its Jewish context, the festival of Pentecost celebrates the gift of the law and the first fruit of the harvest. But it's been precious to the church because at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the disciples for the first time. And I'd like to suggest that Pentecost is about God coming as close as possible. That's really what's going on here. It's a crucial chapter in the great love story that God has been writing or rewriting from the beginning. To say that God is love, which we do, because it says it in the Bible, to say that God is love is to say that there must be an object for his love. Because nobody merely loves. You love someone or something. And we, you and I, we are the object of God's love, every single one of us here. God loves us. Do you know why God loves you? Because he can't stop himself. He is love. God is not loving. He's love. He cannot but love. So you can be a very good little boy or a very bad little boy or a very bad little girl or a good little boy, whatever. God, you cannot stop the rampant love of God. His love for you is not dependent, his love for you is not dependent on you, who you are at all. He cannot but love you because he's love. It's just worth bearing in mind. God is nice and he likes you. It's what I feel I need to say to Christians all the time. It might be worth repeating that to your inner being. God is nice and he likes you. Please don't. I find it sweet cheesy when people do that. But it might be worth whispering it in an English way to yourself from time to time. <laughs> an atheist dismissed um, this idea as merely a linguistic argument in discussion with me. However, it's actually a theolog theological argument deriving from the what the Bible tells us about the nature of God. Because nobody merely loves. One loves someone or something. God loves us, and I have noticed that people are sometimes aware of this, whether they actually um, go to church or not. But here's the thing. The fact that God is love and that he loves us does not automatically mean that we can experience genuine connection with him, even though that is his absolute passion and desire. The thing is, first of all, you aren't necessarily one with something you make, right? So, for example, if I make this jam tart, am I one with this jam tart? No, I am not. I should have had one in my hand. 
In fact, we believe that God the Creator is distinct from what is made. So if an artist produces a painting, does he merge with that painting so that to know the painting is to know all there is to know about the artist? I do not think so. Ultimately, there's more to a person than what they create, even if what they create expresses something about them. That's why I am cynical about the search for God within, which, you know, is pretty popular these days. People want to find God within themselves, and I'm going, no, because he's not limited to you or found within you. He's the maker of you. Equally, um, we're not keen on reducing the divine to our highest human experience, which is probably the experience of love. So people want to equate love with God. But God is more than a feeling, right? I tried singing that last time, and that went really badly. Um, I started choking. Anyway, more than a feeling, something like that for those of you who are old enough. Also, harmonious connection between creator and creation has been made impossible because the beautiful canvas God painted for our, our enjoyment we have torn, wounding it, him, and each other in the process. The Bible does not simply teach us that God is love, but also that God is holy. God is pure, burning, raw justice. That's who he is. So this is what God is like. Imagine there's something you really hate. So you get through most of the news, but there's something comes on which is overwhelming to you, and you hate it. Could be child abuse, could be torture, something that really gets under your skin. Other things bypass you, but these things don't. Every time you hear about it, you rile up within. Now notice the logic of that feeling. The logic of that feeling is to consume, destroy, and obliterate that which is wrong. Now, we only feel that, we believe, because we're made in the image of a raw, just, holy God. We only want to do things like offer free taxi rides in a terrorist attack or come in and serve in the NHS, even though it's not our shift, because we love. And we love because we're made in the image of a loving God, right? Jolly good. So basically... So basically, faced with our failure to live at peace with God and all the consequences that have flowed from that, God is either going to turn away from us, start from scratch, or cease to be true to himself. That is the logic of justice or holiness. It judges sin for what it is, and it seeks to overcome it. So all the great saints of the Old Testament fall foul of the logic of holiness. Moses, who was not allowed to enter into the Promised Land because... He, he did what? He spoke to a rock when he should have what? Uh, but he didn't make it into the promised land. David, who was not allowed to build a temple because he had too much blood on his hands. Elijah, who gets completely depressed and knackered and basically asked to be decommissioned. And God does decommission him, replaces him with Elisha. In the Old Testament, we're always coming up against the problem that there is no adequate mediation between sinful humanity and holy God, even though he loves us. Given this problem, it's astonishing that anybody in the Old Testament manages to walk with God for any distance whatsoever before their sinfulness undoes them. Ultimately, when the holiness of God has been offended sufficiently, and these great people inevitably fail, including Moses, the meekest man who ever lived, or David, the man after God's own heart, each of them is judged and suffers the consequences. The people of Israel are only too happy not to go into the presence of God. They want Moses to go and meet with God because they know if they go into the presence of God, they will surely die. And they are right. Because of their sinfulness, his holiness, and the problem of inadequately mediated God. Let's fast forward to the New Testament because that's all very depressing. The New Testament makes it clear that relationship with God is not possible without the reconciliation of the problem of God's holiness and our sinfulness. But... At the cross, 
God has solved the problem. With no help from us, thank you very much, I'm now going to read to you the only lines of poetry I've ever written. Ready? From the high heart of heaven comes the burning lover's son, stretching wide his arms in welcome to us living, disappearing ones. Thank you so much. Thank you. So listen, where is the only safe place to stand in a jungle fire? I know you're in jungles all the time. So the last time you were in a jungle and there was a jungle fire, where was the only safe place to stand? In case you don't know, it's a place where the fire has already fallen. It's just you know, a public service I'm doing by you know, helping us to know what to do when we're next in a jungle fire. So basically, you're looking for a place where the fire has already fallen. If you are standing in a place where the fire has already burned, you will be entirely safe, even though the fire burns all around you. You'll be fine because the fire has already burnt that place. Now, we believe that the fire of God's holy judgment, his justice, has fallen at the cross. And that means if we are at the cross, which I'm quite confident the vast majority of us here are today, then we are entirely saved from judgment and punishment. Entirely safe. We go free. It's not fair. God does not like fair. He likes mercy. God is wholly other than us in the sense that he likes to show mercy. You know that verse... Oh, how great are your thoughts, how wonderful are your ways, so high above mine. Essentially, we think of that as a reference to God's holiness. But in context, Isaiah says God is unlike us. He's not like a man in that he will have mercy. God likes to have mercy. That is why I say he's nice and he likes you. So everybody who has looked to what God in Christ has done at the cross is fully reconciled, brought home, and loved by the unstoppable lover because he's dealt with the one problem we could not deal with. With no, thanks for, with no contribution from ourselves, as I said. So Pentecost is, first of all, the astonishing climax of the story of stories of how God, who's distinct from his creation and wholly other than us in his holiness, has nevertheless found a way of coming as close as possible. He's made a way through the death and resurrection of his son, and all who look to what God in Christ have done, has done there find that their sins are forgiven, and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, I say to you, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Oh, yes, they are. So you can go on going, oh, woe is me, I'm a slug, I'm a sinful slug. You can say that to yourself as much as you want, but the truth is, God does not know what you're talking about, because it says in the Bible, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and also that he does not remember our sin. So you can remember it as much as you want. God puts it in his great big forgetting. So you're talking about something he's chosen not to remember. So stop it. Do you know what? In the New Testament, Christians are never described as sinners, ever. We are saints of the Most High God. Now, the thing is, if you go around saying, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. If you go around saying that, right, you're going to act like a sinner. If you go around saying, I'm a saint, I'm a saint, I'm a saint, there's a chance that you might behave like one. Okay. You are not who you think you are, not one of you. You are not who you think you are. You are who you think the most significant person in your life thinks you are. It's the theory of the looking glass self. You are not who you think you are. You are who you, who you esteem to be the most significant person in your life who they think you are. So let's play an imaginary game, pretend there's a God. If there's a God, right, and he's the most important person in your life, if he says that he loves you and accepts you and forgives you and you believe it, guess what? That's who you are. 
son of the Most High God, daughter of the Most High God. Um, Dr. Theologian James Haley, who I think lives around here, and I'm very sorry about that, but we have him now. Um, basically, um, he, he, I found him uh, you know, talking to somebody in my church, which was always a bit of a worry because you don't know what he's going to say. But on this occasion, he was saying something very profound, too profound for James. In fact, I assumed somebody else had said it. He was just copying it. But no, he came from his own mind. And so basically, he was saying to this person, Luke, you are God's son, and he wants to use you. And Luke was still droning on about something, prattling on. And, and he, you know, James is just repeating it to him. You are God's son, and he wants to use you. You are God's daughter, and he wants to use you. It's very important to believe what we believe. So, Pentecost means sins are forgiven. It's done. Now, does that mean we don't sin anymore? Oh, no. We carry on right on down the road. When... when when Jesus says we are like sheep, that is not a good thing. Do you know how stupid sheep are? If a sheep falls over, it can't get back up. A sheep will go to the same place in the field, even if it's a snowstorm, because that's where they go. Sheep are really stupid. All we like sheep have gone astray, and it's what we do. It's our special thing. It's our amazing talent to cock it up on a regular basis. But God does not stop loving us despite everything because he cannot, because he is love. And he's reconciled the problem of us at the cross. And he puts his spirit in us to begin the process of change. This is why we need God. We need God and his spirit to come into us as much as possible so that we stand a cat in hell's chance of being a new person. Why be you? Look, why come to a place like this when you could be outside? I mean, it's a bit muggy today and slightly overcast, but actually it's quite nice out there. There are golf clubs, tennis clubs. There's nice places to visit, especially around some bits of the Midlands. I used to live around here. You know, have fun. Be with your family. Be with your children. Play. Rest. Have fun. Do it. You know, if you're going to be here then I think you want to go for the good things about being here. Please don't tick a box. It's dull. No, seriously, don't do box ticking. Come for the good things. Come for the forgiveness of sins. Come for the power of the Spirit. Come for the joy and the peace of being a Christian. And don't deprive yourself of it. And that's what I find in church. The people spend their life going, yeah, I'd like that, but it's not for me. And you think, well, why are you here then? You know, no, it's not. I'm, I'm just actually not good enough. I know. I know you're not good enough. Of course you're not good enough. You will never be good enough. Keep having another go. You'll never be good enough. All the perfectionists here, Christianity is a nightmare for you. Yeah, it's, it's anti-perfectionism. Christianity says, I don't care whether you've done really well or really badly. You're in because I say you're in. Because I've chosen you. Because I love you. I'm glad we're having this little chat. So this is my first question. Are you, please be honest, are you largely guessing at what God is like as opposed to enjoying a relationship with him? The terrorist atrocities that are happening are the result of religion. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with the living God. But people in church sure have a go at turning it into a religion with rules and laws and obligations and pressure to perform and a general sense of failure and shame because they don't meet their own standard, let alone God's. <clears throat> Here's another thing Christians like to do. It's another religious thing. They like to try to earn God's love by good behavior. If I just read my Bible every day or some days or occasionally, if I can spell the word Bible, if I pray from time to time, if I come to church, maybe God will love me. It's an equation. 
Now that's based on our experience of human love, right? People love you because of attributes personal to you. God loves you because he 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 can't stop himself. He loves you despite behavior. It's amazing. Love of God. So Pentecost is about that whole story being fulfilled. And secondarily, and this is my second and only other point, it's about the possibility of intimacy. Intimacy, intimacy, intimacy. I mean, the English, again, we do specialize in not being terribly intimate. Right? It's not our special thing, is it? Intimacy. Either with our friends or our partners or even our children. We are a bit, we are a bit frozen emotionally. We're not as bad as Scandinavians, can I say. It's all to do with sunlight, really. So I've been, I mean, totally depressed. And as the sunlight rises, there's more sunlight. Yeah, they actually become happier and better. You know, I've got a German friend who says if he wants to feel better about himself, he comes to England. And if he wants to feel really good about himself, he goes to the States. Totally understand. But we're the English, so kind of on the league table, somewhere towards the bottom. We are not the definition of normal when it comes to emotions. However, um, developments in neuroscience have shown us the intimate connection is just about, it's the most important thing a child needs from the age of 0 to 3. If they don't get it, it actually stunts the growth of their brain. And it continues to be the most important thing in life. It's the greatest predictor of success in a man's life. The longest longitudinal study, begun in 1938, showed that the greatest predictor of success in this group of men's lives who went to Harvard is the existence of a long-term loving relationship. Now, you can see where I'm going with this, can't you, vis-a-vis -vis God? So human relationships, relationships are important, but there is no human being, including the one sitting next to you that you're closest to, who can love you like God. So the possibility of intimacy with God is a massive jewel in the crown. And the quest for true connection in our relationships and the pain that comes when that quest is frustrated is a large part of our story as human beings. So Israel knew there was one God who had broken into their history and set them free from captivity, but he was in many ways above and beyond understanding. They couldn't make an image of him. They couldn't say his name. Then, in the person of his son, God comes as near as breathing, as close as hands and feet, so that nobody need guess at what God is like anymore. Jesus has made God known. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says. But after Pentecost, God comes closer still. See, God is coming closer and closer and closer. After Pentecost, God comes and lives on the inside. It's an incredible deal. Better than having Jesus in front of you and walking with you every day of your life. To have the spirit of Jesus living in you makes you a little Christ and potentially has the power to transform you from the inside out and to make you like him. And basically, when I go around training people in how to pray for people, which I do love to do, all I'm encouraging them to do is be who they are. Because when the spirit of God is in you, not only do you feel sad and sorry when you hear sad and sorry stories, but you also realize you have the power to do something about it. So basically, you know, we are forever entering into deeply traumatic circumstances in human lives. And we are bringing the power of God into those situations. Now, that does not mean they are all fully resolved. It doesn't mean that they're all completely healed. And it's certainly not the first time we pray. But these people who have come with me, they have got some pretty bad life circumstances they've had to deal with. And it's not just being in my church. There are even worse things than that. But basically, you know, but the courage with which they process their stuff and ask the Spirit in is amazing. But still more amazing, and most moving to me yesterday when we had a debrief after yesterday, was to hear their stories of how God had used them. 
Now, that's the win for me. I want to see people moving in the power of the Spirit despite their brokenness. But what chance do we stand if we don't even allow ourselves to be drawn close? If we're not even letting God come near to us, what, do we, what chance do we stand? And you know what? Some people are cautious about the Holy Spirit. They haven't heard much about the Spirit, or they're cautious about the Spirit. I have to say, I don't really understand that, to be honest. I don't understand it experientially because I was converted from atheism, and I went to a meeting where somebody was speaking about Jesus, and the more they spoke, the more I lost consciousness of everything around me. And basically, the guy said, if you'd like to become a Christian, do you want to come forward? So I was definitely not going to do that. But I, there was a power moving me out of my chair, so I held the chair. I gripped the chair, and the feeling carried on and then it stopped so I managed to get out of the building and basically I went home with a friend we had an argument he was a Christian and he must have been uncomfortable with arguments or something you guys probably find that you know understandable I had no clue why but he said we should pray together I'm going what I might have prayed with mummy when I was about four and then it stopped so basically we went back to my room and he prayed a prayer out loud and this presence that was in the room filled me from my head to my feet. It was the most ecstatic experience of my life. Lasted about 40 seconds. I shook and I spoke in tongues. This guy did not speak in tongues. So basically, um, that's how I became a Christian. So I was initiated into the supernatural and the spirit from the beginning. But man, was I empty and knackered. By the time I became a Christian, I was so tired and bored of myself. Oh my dear goodness, show me anything other than me is what I really wanted. And so it was a huge relief to discover the love of God. And I found from that moment I had a compulsive desire to read the Bible. I was like a pregnant woman with a food fad. Just give me the Bible. I love the Bible. It was the best book in the world, best book ever written. It was like what I would do for fun or praying. Praying. Love praying. Pray all the time. Couldn't stop praying. Love praying. And wanted to speak about my faith, which quite frankly I've been doing for the last 30-something years since then. But nobody taught me to do those things. The Spirit came into me and totally changed me. I was a serious atheist. So, also, I don't understand it theologically. So, just check this list for me, you know, being conservative about the Spirit. Check this list for me. How do you become a Christian? Oh, is it by the Holy Spirit? Is it the Holy Spirit that draws you to Jesus? I think it is. How do you understand the Bible? Is it by the Spirit? Oh, yes, it is. Who inspired the Bible? Was it the Spirit? Yes, it was. Praying. The Bible says you don't know how to pray. Who teaches you to pray? Is it the Holy Spirit? Yes, it is. Whose fruits do you bear in your life? Is it the Holy Spirit? I think so. And whose image are you being made into and by whom? Is it Jesus by the Holy Spirit? I think it is. Who gives you gifts to do things in the world? Is it the Holy Spirit? I think so. So really, there isn't room to be cautious about the Spirit. Can you imagine Jesus saying, blessed are the cautious. I'm sending, you out, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, but please be careful. It's not going to happen, is it? You want to be wild and crazy. I don't even care how old you are. You know, forget how old you are. Become wild and crazy. Please, for the sake of the kingdom of God, take a few risks. Live a little life. Ask the power of the Spirit to come and do what he would like to do. There's one guy that I really love called John Wimber. He, he basically came to the end of himself, having been really quite successful as a church leader and a church planter, but he was totally exhausted. And he felt God say to him after he first experienced the Spirit, having been in church for years, he felt God say, I've seen your ministry, John, and now I'm going to show you mine. So basically, how's your ministry going? How is your ministry going? You don't need to be in church to have a ministry. How's it going? Are you a bit tired? 
You've been exhausted, are you a bit passionless, a bit visionless? I'm sure some of you aren't, but just in case some people are, that's because the spirit's not involved enough. And it's the same with me. I can do this stuff. And when the spirit's involved, it's a whole different ballgame. I can do this stuff with the spirit or without the spirit. If I'm really doing it with the spirit, I love it. I love my job. I love it. I love shouting at people. It's great. <laughs> so dutifully serving God is no substitute for knowing his love. Working for God as if we were employees totally misses the point. So has the love of God ever been shed abroad in your heart, ever? Or has it been a long, dry, exhausting old time since that last happened? You will know the answer. Can I just say, by way of encouragement, the process by which we move away from God involves lots of stupid decisions, bad things that happen in life, disappointment, and suddenly we find ourselves away from where we once were. And, and then God almost seems like a memory. Seems like a distant memory, whatever. Something that happened when I was younger, maybe. By contrast, the process of restoration to God happens in a moment. How do I know that? Because it says so in the Bible. The parable of the prodigal son. I've really loved uh, discovering a new dimension to this, which I read about from somebody else, which is normally how I get any of my good ideas. And basically, th this commentator pointed out that the hope of the father was never diminished. So the son treats him as dead, treats his family as dead, leaves never to come back, has no plan B, blows it on immoral living, and basically comes crawling back because he knows if he doesn't, he's going to die. Great. That's his son. The father's vision for the life of his son has never dimmed throughout that time. Not for one moment. He still hopes because he's looking for his return all the time. Now, the problem is that while the son is away from the father, he cannot actually connect with the vision of the father because he's pigging it up with some actual pigs. So that means he can't connect with his father, not properly. But the father's hope never diminishes. So as soon as he sees the stinker coming back over the horizon, he's rushing down the road towards him because this is what he's long for, the return of the son. And he's cramming that ring onto his finger, the ring of sonship, and the clothes of Party Central. He's putting them on him even though he hasn't had a bath. Doesn't matter. God takes him in his arms. The father takes him in his arms because he loves him and he's been longing for the return. And that's how God feels about you. If you're far away at the moment, if you feel you're far away, that's how God feels about you. So let's imagine, I know you never do this kind of thing, but let's just imagine you go out for a wild night. This works better in central London. You, you go out for a wild night and you have drunk way, way, way beyond too much. And you get in, you knock on the door, you try to get your key in the door. It's difficult to see the door, let alone the lock. And uh, you just have a really passionate need to get to the loo and be sick. Sorry to be so graphic. You manage to get the key in the lock, you turn the lock, and as you are heading towards the loo, there is Jesus. Robes, sandals, and you are sick all over him. What would Jesus do? What do you think he'd do? I think he'd help you sort yourself out, help you get into bed, think you'd be there the next morning, made the coffee, and I think he'd ask you one question, which is, where does it hurt? That's what I think Jesus would do. And I think he's asking you that, some of you, 
Where does it hurt? Where did it all go wrong? Where did we somehow lose connection? How did that happen? And then he'll just say, do you want to come back? Do you want to start again? Just rip it all up, shall we? Rip up the past. Let's just start again. I think that's what Jesus is saying to us. Because we are just that stupid, and we need somebody with that kind of love and grace in our lives, all of us. So Pentecost is about relationship, and it's also about communication. That's where speaking in tongues comes in. So being English, we like to stay with what is rational. And it's true that we need to use our minds to communicate. That's absolutely true. But also, there are times in life when we need something more visceral, more incohate, something that helps us to groan and sigh. So, for example, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, you do not think, you don't say, oh my goodness, I've hit my thumb with a hammer. You go, ow! And if you're in emotional pain, you groan. You groan. I used to, when I was younger, I used to remember embarrassing things I'd done and lie on my bed and groan. Help me. And if you're very, very happy, you've got no words. <laughs> Lovers have their own language. Doesn't even, it's not even English. Little children speak their own language sometimes. This is speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is your inner being articulating deep things that you can't really understand. It's helping you express the inexpressible. And then it's uniting with the Holy Spirit who, who makes that into prayer, who hears your inner being, your deepest cries. Paul says we don't know how to pray, but the Spirit is given to help us in our weakness with sighs and groans too deep for words. So, of course, these guys speak in tongues. This is ecstatic utterance. The disciples are turned from being um, believers into ecstatic believing lovers, and they have a language to articulate their love. So, I think it's a bit like this. Basically, um, it's like God comes down and scoops up the fallen earth and gives it a good snog. And people are left gibbering, speaking in tongues. Ecstatic utterance. You can all speak in tongues. I want every one of you to speak in tongues. I mean, that actually is said by Paul in 1 Corinthians, but I'm just adding my weight to it too. I want every one of you to speak in tongues. You all can. Because you can all make goo goo gaga noises, and God chooses to give that power for reasons best known to himself. I'm not arguing with him. I like the way it's made so simple. Even a child can enter the kingdom of God, right? In fact, you need to be one to enter into the kingdom of God, like a child. But I want you to be able to pray and praise God without having to be constrained by English rationalism and the tyranny of feeling it all should be lived out in your mind. You are not just a mind, are you? When you, when you leave this place, are you thinking to yourself, mind, mind, I'm a mind. No, you're not, are you? You're a whole being feeling things, feeling the wind. You are wanting food. You are a whole being with desires and needs. So why would you leave God out of the entirety of your being? That's enough. <laughs>